I want to play a game of 20 questions. That's okay. <laughs> What a question, right? I dare. <laughs> All right, there might be more truth in this. I'm not going to ask you to do any dares, so you don't, you don't have to worry. So okay, you, yeah, you can lie questions. too. <laughs> right, yeah, I might throw in a dare just to mix it up. You know, just well, I might have to get a knife or something, right? <laughs> just pull your tongue out. It's fine. You're right. Yeah. Just pull your tongue out. <laughs> uh. Welcome to Quality Violent Cinema. We have the legend Tim Ritter here. Uh, welcome. You might know him for, you know, a Killer Spree and uh, first movie, Day of the Reaper, but he also did the Truth or Dare series. Um, very notorious. He's got some good stuff under his belt. Thank you. Good to be here. We were talking about some of your early shorts, like uh, the Panther one is going to be on a set that's coming out soon. Like what other other your earlier shorts are going to be on there just for now i think we're going to put the first two uh, shorts that i did in 1978 uh on this hopefully this upcoming box set because of course you know everything's always to be determined but uh, we are working on a box set and my first super eight movie is called super panther and it was filmed in 1978 kind of a mixture of uh, superman the movie and uh, the pink panther franchise which i was a pretty big fan of and still am but uh, those those two, they're real short. They're like three and a half minutes. But that was the first time that I picked up a, a Super 8 movie camera on my own and, you know, made my my own movies back then. So that was kind of the very humble beginning. What was Have the other heard? short that was going to be on there? Uh, beyond those, I mean, yeah, once I started, you know, once I got the film bug and, and got a hold of the Super 8 movie camera, man, I made a bunch of movies. I mean, I was constantly throughout probably middle school and high school i was just kind of cranking out movies uh it from outer space uh it it came from saturn uh, then i saw halloween uh, uh i made a movie called about a killer bowling ball a whole franchise almost <laughs> mixture of rocky and uh a killer bowling ball movie of all the weird things but uh, basically about a world champion bowler and uh, his enemies tried to make a remote controlled bowling ball so he'd all get gutter balls. And all this was because my cousin, uh, Joe Pruth, had a bowling alley in the basement of, of their house. And every time I'd go up to Ohio and visit him, let's make another bowling ball movie. So at the end, he would have to <laughs> with the bowling ball and either shoot it out of the sky and then go win the tournament. And we, I kind of scored it with vinyl uh, scores from the Rocky movie. So, mm -hmm. and then, of course, when I saw how. Um, I realized that, uh, you know, we didn't have to shoot as high as uh, crazy bowling ball movies. And another one I made was a couple of them was about a killer shop shopping cart. And that was probably <laughs> a little bit, but yeah, these little aliens, they, they commandeered the uh, shopping cart in a, in a parking lot. And then they just started mowing down, uh, you know, all the, the shoppers and then the cops, I played one of the cops got called and I think I was uh, Dent Westwood. Uh, <laughs> They were pretty heavy-handed, and I had to battle the shopping cart. And I remember we went to the uh, and the ending. All these shopping carts all attacked me. It was kind of like a spaghetti western, and I was on uh, like a big sand dune. And I remember it was like twenty feet down, and I wrestled this shopping cart and it kept going head over heels down the huge embankment. Yeah, just crazy stuff. But then 
after Halloween, of course, you know, then I made movies like Dead and Gone, Bits and Pieces, and they're more, you know, slasher oriented. Those are some of the, and I probably made 20 or 30 of those movies. And I had, I had, you know, we created little posters for them and we even had our own little fanzine that we would uh, publish and photocopy and hand out. It was a full, full, uh, full production company with no money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause you started when you were like 10 or 11 doing this. Right. Right. Yeah, that's just crazy to think about. Is there any thoughts of remastering or remaking Day um, Day Reaper? Uh, well, Day of the Reaper obviously was my culmination of Super 8 movie making. I uh, went from three minutes to 12 minutes to 15 minutes, then went up to 30 minutes and 35 minutes. And finally, when, when I got enough uh, experience, I said, well, we can make a feature, feature-length movie. And that became Day of the Reaper, 72 minutes. And that was kind of inspired by, you know, all the things that I was getting into with horror then. And we transferred that to uh, videotape and went around store to store to, to sell that. But as far as, you know, remaking it, um, I've had a few people, a few producers, you know, approach me about it. I'm thinking more maybe some sort of sequel slash remake, maybe in the same traditions, you know, 40, 45 years later, whatever it's been. But you never know, you know, I, you know it's not on the, the, the books right now, but, I, you know, I wouldn't say never, never say never again, said James Bond. So. <laughs> Uh, would you like remake any of those early shorts you were talking about i mean like the bowling ball movie i would totally love to see a whole fucking franchise about <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> about a killer bowling ball uh, yeah funny as hell maybe i mean you know, got we, rubber I, the last one we shot was in 1986 and uh, i think right right before or after truth or dare and uh we went up to ohio and uh, my cousin and I, it was our last big bowling ball movie. And he had just come out of the special forces. So he knew how to blow things up. So we decided to, uh, to go in the pond. At the end, he made this incredible bomb. And we just blew up this bowling ball. <laughs> Everybody came running out of the house. And we had real guns and explosives out there. And well, they, they thought we were blowing up the place. But, but it was quite a spectacular <laughs> what a way to spend uh, like christmas right <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah <clears throat> what kind of force does it take to blow up a bowling ball it seems like it takes like a probably he, a lot he i filmed some of it It was some kind of pipe bomb he made so he mm. was really close and everything i mean and we <laughs> it slow motion it looks incredible <laughs> mm, <interesting>. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you still have that footage by the way Oh, I do. Yeah, it could show up as an extra. I just have to take, you know, we'd have to dub out the, the copyrighted music and the soundtrack. So some of that could appear in an upcoming release. And also there was a movie right before, a Super 8 movie right before Day of the Reaper was made called The Killing Connection. And it's it, it's pretty good. It's kind of like Day of the Reaper and it's it's pretty, pretty gnarly and pretty gory and uh, kind of like a Dirty Harry type of movie with a killer and the killer's crucifying women and uh it's a movie that i showed in high school and almost got a teacher fired because (laughs) there was he didn't watch the movie he put it in a vcr and pointed it at the class all and there's where a pregnant girl is walking down the street and the killer you know jams a machete in her in her belly and the blood goes all over the place and somebody complained fortunately fortunately that worked out so (laughs) trouble so uh, thanks for a good story though <laughs> yeah kind of crazy time huh? <laughs> but yeah that, 
here on a, a, a you know, I see that more maybe if uh, Day of the Reaper gets re-released, it'd be a great extra, like a 35-minute, you know, the movie before. Day. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. That'd be sick. So, yeah. So, anybody that wants to collect and watch this stuff, you know, keep your eyes peeled for, you know, more more madness. Mm-hmm. And then you you continuously work with, like, SRS, right? So, like, that's where, where I'll see most of your stuff coming from? Yes, yeah. I've been with uh, SRS, which is Ron Bach's operation since, wow, <laughs> 90, probably 95 or 6, right after Creek. Uh, I hooked up with him. We've had a really good, uh, you know, working relationship. And uh, he's, he's one of the few distributors that really, you know, pays when, you know, when you make money and he makes sales, he will pay, so... And you had your start with Sub Rosa, or yeah, SRS Cinema. Yep. Oh, okay. Sub Rosa used to be okay. That makes sense. Yeah, they've changed the name a couple times for I don't know, I don't know business reasons or something. So. Oh, okay. I, somehow I never put those two together, but I kind of I can see that. Yeah, he started out as Salt City Home Video, and then I think uh, he went to Sub Rosa Studios, and I think it's now SRS Cinema. So oh, okay. it's just a name, probably shorter name for you know to, to make it easier to remember or something. SRS. I do that with QVC all the time and shorten it just so because right. people are like, what call you about QVC? <laughs> now it's S C I and F I or something. <laughs> or is it S Y F? It used to be S Y F Y, but now I don't know what it is now. Yeah. So some some amount of like amalgamation of letters. It's one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Less of the CBS. You know? Right. <laughs> so joel was your babysitter uh was there any other other family members or friends or in your early work oh yeah always uh i was joel wyckoff was my babysitter in, in the 70s and he made super eight movies and uh, he also drew comic books and so you know he babysit me and i was always creative and i always looked up to him and said wow this guy's making movies and drawing comic books which he still does so I ended up being one of, in one of his movies. I think it was a Bionic Boy movie. My dad was in it. He drove a van, and I played one of the henchmen. So then, uh, you know, later on, uh, he moved away, and then we, you know, we hooked up uh, when I was distributing uh, Day of the Reaper uh, in probably 1984. But yeah, we would always use uh, friends, family members, and for each movie, I would cast, uh, you know jocks cheerleaders uh, all the popular kids in school for my super eight movies and and some of the daredevil guys i remember there was one movie we shot it was a james bond movie called license to kill before they made the real license to kill <laughs> and i had this a bunch of crazy guys who were in sports and stuff and they were like you know uh yeah i can jump off of bridges and i was like well what do you mind if we have if we you sit on the bridge can you go over backwards and you know i'm gonna have a guy <laughs> With a, a fake gun and go, ha, 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 ha. and you know there we were shooting that right, uh, right on the bridge. He went flying over, you know, like thirty feet down to the, uh, the to the uh, actually the intercoastal in Florida. So it was a great shot in the movie. And that was, I just remember there's another scene in that. It might be of interest to fans where somebody falls down, has a little motorcycle wreck, and he's he's like screaming in the helmet. The bad guys run his head over in the helmet. But these were all school buddies. But you know later we used. Uh, the uh, drama teachers and uh, we actually uh, in school I staged an assassination fake of course of President Reagan at the time we had a student in a red mask and 
he came off and we had to kill her and this is stuff you would never this would trigger so many people today they would be so outraged and i'd probably be kicked out of the school and everybody would be fired but you know we did that on school time and everybody was really you know cool with it i even got credit for it so (laughs) b plus on your directing there but uh you know that led to the drama teachers being in movies and uh richard page uh he was in Twisted Illusions, or my second movie. He played the guy in the Capricorn Network segment. And he ended up being in Truth or Dare Critical Madness, which was, you know, a bigger funded movie uh, right when I graduated high school. And he was just thrilled. And then I, I know there was a story about, like, one of the Backstreet Boys or something like that ended up in, like, Truth or Dare. Was there any other, like, uh, people that made a big name for themselves after your movies? Uh well, uh, you know, the lead actor of Truth or Dare, Critical Madness, John Brace, he went on and he's a big casting director in, um, you know, Los Angeles and, and Hollywood. He does like Grey's Anatomy and all the big TV shows. And I've seen his name on big movies, too, which is really cool. Uh, Mary Finera went on to star in Miami Vice on the, on the final season. And she did a bunch of big uh, movies, an Oliver Stone movie on any given Sunday. And of course, Joel Harlow, our special makeup effects guy who did uh, Killing Spree, started out with us on Killing Spree. He uh, won the Academy Award for the new, one of the new Star Trek movies, uh, probably probably the remake with Chris Pine, whenever that one hit. So he won the Academy Award for special makeup effects. And I mean, he was just right out of school uh, when we did Killing Spree. He worked with Mark Peterson and who knows? I mean, from, from Killing Spree, he went on to Trauma movies, Toxic Avenger 2 and 3, Basket Case, uh, all those, and then just went all the way. Up. I mean, his uh, right-hand uh, man now is Johnny Depp. So when he was doing the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and everything, that was kind of cool. And our, damn. Yeah, so some of these guys really, really did well. And one of his mentioned uh the other guy who does the uh i think his name was mike mike uh i forget his last name he's an italian guy but you'll know exactly who he is he did score to rogue one jurassic world he's done the mm. you know does um, you know all the big hollywood <laughs> you know, he's like a big soundtrack recordist now i think mike michael giacchino's is is the name he goes under now so i mean he'd used a different name in killing spree probably you know probably everybody should have but uh <laughs> <laughs> but he's done real well for himself it's nice to see and it's just you know i was listening to his soundtracks as a fan before i realized oh wow i worked with this guy back in 1987 he was really really cool cool dude you know just again in school or just out of school and wanted yeah. to do a low budget horror movie so are your films in the same cinematic universe or um, do they make references to each other Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Especially the movies I made from 19, from Day of the Reaper, 84, all the way to probably Dirty Cop 2 in uh, 1999, 2000. All those movies have little little references, kind of like uh, influenced by Stephen King, the way he always refers to like Castle Rock and other, you know, like in It and, and other books, you know, refer to Christine or Plymouth Fury or incidents that happened. We always did that, always made little end jokes. Like you can even see it in Twisted Illusions. You'll see a, a Day of the Reaper poster hanging above the guy's head and the one guy's watching it on uh, TV and and Sunnyville Mental Institution comes into play. And, and of course, all the Truth or Dare movies are a big franchise together. But mm-hmm. you know, we always refer to those, you know, in, in each movie all the way up through probably Dirty Cop 2. Mm-hmm. Speaking of those, are you going to re-release Dirty Cop uh, 1 and 2? Because another kind of difficult to find. 
Yeah, they should. If this box set goes as planned, they should be on this uh, Blu-ray box set next year. It's it's a big thing, of course, with all the companies uh, remastering all the old analog video movies and and putting them on box sets. Uh, you know, through all like Vinegar Syndrome and all the part mm. part labels. Even the Wave videos are getting a new lease on life. So, and last year. Well, I guess early this year, they, they released uh, Killing Spree uh, on TerraVision uh, through Vinegar Syndrome. So mm-hmm. it was really cool to see that on a deluxe uh, you know, Blu-ray. That'd be awesome, especially <clears throat> such a badass company taking your movie. Was Dirty Cop 2 pretty similar to the first one in its premise? Or is kind of just like, you know, obviously a Dirty Cop being not good at his job, essentially? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Only uh, Donald Farmer plays an, another cop who is Joel Weinkoop's character's, uh, I think, I want to say cousin. And so they're kind of rivals. And then he figures out that uh, the, that his brother, who filmed the first one, is is out with this other cop. And they go to a video store and they see that he's made a million dollars off the original. And so there's this big complication set up that never really happens because we were thinking about a part three. But uh, so it is a little different, but more of the same. It's, it's shot the same. And, and mm-hmm. we kind of left the uh, ending kind of hanging. And we never did get to do a third one just because of kind of, you know, low sales and not a lot of interest. But there was some viral videos between Joel Weinkoop and uh, Donald Farmer made kind of kind of setting it up. So those are included. And, you know, who, if this does well, who knows, maybe we'll do a third one. I, I personally get it, but I can see that some people maybe like the lack of story, maybe because it's just kind of it seems like it's like you're watching cops, you know, in some aspect. Right. But um, but I think it's great. I think it's an awesome approach to a film. Oh, cool. And, yeah, um, thank you. But it was definitely inspired by cops just kind of on steroids. You know, it's like, <laughs> what if a crazy guy, you know, got... And that was before all the police officer controversies of the mm-hmm. last four years, you know. Who knew it would become something where everybody looked at them like heroes and cops, and then it's just completely reversed now a lot of the times. And... When you look at that situation, a lot of it's done because you're missing pieces of the video. People are mm-hmm. cutting things out and only showing you part of it. So it's really, you know, I, I don't think cops is even on the air anymore. I don't think that would fly to no. <laughs> yeah. No, especially with the worst, you know, having reggae as a cop beating doesn't seem to match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I don't know if you can even make a dirty cop three in today's climate uh, without yeah. It would be touchy. It'd be very touchy. You, you might get some mixed reviews. Negative publicity is the best publicity, though. <laughs> That's true. Well, on that note, though, when Dirty Cop No Donut uh, was released, started out on fire. Like the amazing world of cult movies uh, gave me best director for shot on video. And Joel got best actor. Everybody loved it. But then when it went mainstream and uh, like the New York Times got a hold of it and all these different uh, bigger the New Jersey Shoreline Times, TV Guide. Uh, we were on, in Movie Line, and everybody trashed it. They were like, you can throw this tape across the street and smash it to pieces, don't watch it. And it was terrible reviews, and it mm. it killed. You would think that kind of publicity would help you. If, if I was reading about it and thinking, yeah, man, I got to see this. this. You know, if I would <laughs> Apparently, nobody else, they were, they were like, oh, man. It killed everything. We had a big website up and, and everything. And it just, I don't, for some reason, like you said, it just, you just never know what the public will, will like, but it really, mm-hmm. really, yeah. really. You know? 
<laughs> but I think you have such a big you know, repertoire of different movies that, you know, you can pick and choose and, you know, like, oh, I may not like that one, but I really like that one. So it's like it, mm-hmm. all, it broadens your, your audience. I mean, it was a $350 movie, so mm-hmm. that's probably my cheapest movie ever. So, you know, it wasn't like we were losing a lot, but we were off to a really good start. And then we saw Blair Witch success right around that time. And we'd done all before that, and I was like, oh, wow, we're finally at the right place. And man, it's just probably not popular to see, you know, a rapist be confronted and then have to self-mutilate his genitals by a cop with a gun mm-hmm. pointed at his head. <laughs> Sounds like good cinema to me, you know. <laughs> you know, there is like, it may be a little too far. But then again, you got stuff like Bad Lieutenant, you know. But oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to see this one. Though. Definitely sounds up my alley. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty twisted. Uh, speaking of twisted, though, with Twisted Illusions being an anthology and it's directed by you and Joel, I was wondering, like, how do you guys share responsibilities and if there was any issues with that? No, I mean we didn't direct together together. As you know, he took he did three segments and I did three segments, and you know I wrote and directed mine, he wrote and directed his, and we did uh, the mm-hmm. final segment, the Truth or Dare segment. And Joel's just starred in that one, and I directed. And then we did one together at the beginning, kind of a little wraparound thing. You know, it worked out real well. That was our first collaboration, you know, our first official, you know, when we got reunited in 1984 or 85. So, you know, just kind of divided it up and did it. So there was no problem. So So you guys both had the creative freedom to kind of do what you wanted. Right, yeah. let's go do something and that was the easiest thing to do at the time as far as uh you know getting you know that by then i used adult actors you're talking about uh you know casting before now we were going around into local playhouses we were going to shopping malls and putting flyers on cars and doing open auditions at hotels and kind of trying to make a name for ourselves to be a little bit more professional though even though we weren't so we're making steps and you came out of twisted illusion too um in like 2005 or was it or when was that well, it was like 20 years later because at the end credits of uh the original it said coming soon twisted illusions too and we kept meaning to do it and it was like finally joel and i said you know one of the uh, we're gonna have to do it and it was 20 years 2005 <laughs> finally got it out and joel did a segment he did his in florida i had moved to kentucky so i did mine in kentucky and uh, mm-hmm. a friend of mine a filmmaker john balker joined us and uh He's done a lot of cool movies. The uh, I think the Evil Maker movies and uh, Housebound and a bunch of other stuff. And he did a segment. So, and you know, it was real fun. You know, and we're thinking about doing uh, a part three in the near future. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, Evil Maker looks cool. 20, 40, 60. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's better late than never. Exactly. It's like, will anybody even remember? Oh, back in 1985, and now it's 2025. Uh. <laughs> and did you use the same kind of equipment? Because it seems like they're almost like made to seem like it was recorded in the same time, like your later one. Uh well, Twisted Illusions Two was shot probably on, I want to say, digital eight. But yeah, it took me a long time to get out of the, uh, you know analog i didn't really get out of the analog until 2012 with uh deadly dares where i shot on mini dv with uh uh and it wasn't i guess it was hd but it wasn't uh it wasn't 4k or anything it was kind of you know there's that period where 
it was transitioning from, you know, to digital where it was, you know, mini DV and then going to HD and then the, uh, you know, the, I guess, 4K and all that. But I kind of stayed with, you know, the older equipment until Deadly Dares. And then we did a uh, high eight after Deadly Dares, which the, the, the gag on that was, hey, all these directors are returning back to their, you know, roots on analog equipment. I'm like, oh, well, I never even left. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> so we were on high eight in 2013 or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was a fun movie. A lot of cool collaborators, Todd Sheets, uh, Ron Bonk, uh, Donald Farmer, to name a few. Marcus uh, Cook, yeah. So, Chris, yeah. But I was still shooting on that. So it hasn't been till, till recently where I've done more like Sharks of the Corn where I actually use 4K. So, but the idea for Twisted Illusions 3 is to go back to uh, analog video. So, and, and actually, actually, I'm working with uh, uh, a, a new filmmaker who did uh, Night of the Zodiac, and uh, mm. she shoots in uh, pretty much all the old. She's obsessed with Todd Sheets, uh, the Polonium Brothers, uh, Donald Farmer, all mm. those people, and she only shoots in the old equipment. So, the idea is maybe for part three to shoot that in the uh you know the older formats so hell yeah uh, do you think i'll ever go back to film because i i know you stuck with sov for quite a while and then jumped to digital but like would you ever go back to film if you had the opportunity uh i mean yeah if we had the budget and the, you know if, if we budget because it's very expensive that was one of the things uh, for both truth or dare and killing spree course shooting on 16 millimeter film back then was you know the thing to do because you were in the fine traditions of not a living dead evil dead hills have eyes last house in the mm. land that i really liked so it was like and we were able to get the money but you know the budget the processing the negative transfer of all that you know these days it, it's it's very expensive and it was expensive back then i think it was about eighteen twenty thousand dollars for for just all that on killing spree so if we would have shot it on say beta sp we would have saved all that money and it probably would have looked pretty similar but damn you know, time it seemed like the, the thing to do so, <laughs> so what do you say to the people that um consider truth or dare um and killing spree uh sob because i've heard a lot of lists where you get listed a lot as those being their favorite sob do you classify those as sob um, technically, yeah, they were they were made specifically for VHS cassettes. And when they originally came out, that's all you, you know, that's the only place you really saw them. So, I mean, technically, I would agree with that. But of course, then there's the purists who say, oh, no, no, that wasn't shot on analog video. It can't qualify. And I'm like, oh, well, but it went directly to cassette. So, you know, um, I guess you could look at it either way. But then, you know, a couple of years ago uh, with the Draft House uh, Theater, uh, they ran Killing Spree all summer and did real well, you know, filling up the, you know, the theater with, uh, you know, people who went to the movie theater and watched it all an entire summer. So that was kind of cool. So, you know, who knows? But it was shot on 16 millimeter film, but we actually added it on video. We just did a, a transfer directly to one inch videotape and we added it, you know, on video. So there was no film cutting. So I guess technically you could really say that was, you know, mm -hmm. shot video post-production on video like yeah. PO, pov yeah <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um since truth or dare was your um was first a short film were is there any others that you considered to do as a full feature 
Um, I'd like to do uh, Switchblade Insane, which is my segment in High Eight. I still would like to make that into a, a feature-like movie because it's got. We had to, you know, the restriction was, you know, do it inspired by one of your favorite movies, and one of my favorite movies is Last House on the Left, and I was kind of inspired by that for that, and I just think it would translate really cool because we had to shoot it in under, well, we had to come in with a running time about 10 minutes. So, but I had so much material in it and I saw that it could go so many places that it would be fun to do that. You know, a lot of movies are, are done that way. They start out as shorts and, and then become, you know, something bigger, but no, truth it is the only one I think that I did that started out as a short and then went much, you know, larger into a feature and then a whole little franchise of movies, uh, five of them so far. Hmm. Uh, you had a pretty decent size, like budget for truth or dare. Like how'd you end up getting it? Uh, well, I, again, I'd hooked up with, uh, Joel Weinkoop and I, and when we were selling, uh, day of the reaper, we met a guy named Al Nicolosi who worked at a video store and he sh- ended up producing and shooting Twisted Illusions for us uh, and collaborating with him uh, took us kind of to a newer level because we were using three quarter inch video and uh, half inch VHS. So, you know, we had sync sound, a little bit more professionalism and he worked at a, a television station. So long story short, wrote that, you know, that truth or dare concept into a, a larger script and we started shopping it around to to different places and ended up uh when we were selling twisted illusions there were these van guys that picked up twisted illusions and took it up the coast of uh you know pretty much i guess the northern coast of, of the united states all the way from florida to new to new york and at that point they there's more van guys in chicago and I think we got somebody's business card out of Chicago. It was called Video Swap International. And these guys were interested. I think they were distributing, I want to say 666 or you know, one of those early shot on video movies. 555, you mean? 555, yeah. right. And they were doing that and they wanted to make their own. And that's when we approached them. They'd seen Twisted Illusions. And then we ended up making uh, a finance video and sending them the script and then right out of high school I was negotiating with them for about six months to do a you know shot on video movie and truth or dare was intended to be you know a critical intended to be a a beta shot on video movie and uh when the the producer got involved that's when more money came in and we got really lucky and got a $250,000 budget and a limited partnership and just kind of blew up from there you know and in our favor which was awesome yeah and then uh, how'd you pull off that car explosion? Like, were you actually like pretty close to it? Cause I mean, I know you had a pretty big stunt team. Yeah. Uh, well, again, when you have money, you're able to hire uh, really good people. And the producer of the movie, Yale Wilson was well-connected. He hired a guy named Bob Shelley and Jerry Berry, uh, who was a stuntman. Both of them had worked on like Ghostbusters, Code of Silence, all these big, uh, bigger budget Hollywood movies. So, and, and they've done low budget horror movies as well. So uh, as a matter of fact, Bob Shelley was just in, uh, well, he was in extras in the John Saxon movie, the, the cannibal one that they just, somebody just re-released not too long ago, but he's in there. He did even that movie. I forget the name of it. Uh, it's got one of those cannibal Holocausts. Oh, uh, can- cannibal apocalypse. Yeah, that's it. exactly. So he's in the extras there. 
and he's the guy that blew up uh, everything in, in truth or dare. So they were really professional. But the interesting thing about that stunt, you know, of course we used, uh, you know, uh, lenses close up mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, capture all of that. But um, when you see the car slide into the telephone pole, you'll, you'll see an explosion. And it was the power box. We hadn't planned on that. And we knocked the whole neighborhood's uh, power out including the mayor's house uh, when we shot that. So it was, uh, we were lucky nobody got hurt because of, of that crazy stuff. So, but it, you know, it was all done by professionals, but those guys were fearless, you know. <laughs> Where are you going with the story on Truth or Dare 6, if you do it? Uh, I'm not really exactly sure yet, but uh, one of the ideas I, I've been toying with is, uh, you know, Mike Strauber from the original, he'd be pretty old now. So maybe somebody's, uh, uh, maybe he's died and somebody saved his brain and kind of like a brain type of movie where you, where the brain's still alive and it can transfer his, uh, you know, his essence into other people to do his evil deeds. Although I don't know how well that will go over now since, so. Uh, you know, we saw that reception recently with uh, Halloween ends. Uh, <laughs> <with> <laughs> the Michael Myers transferring uh, a new killer, right? <laughs> yeah, as long as you have a decent, like, a just bloody gore count, it should be fine. I mean, Halloween ends was taken up a little far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've been doing that in all the movies since, you know, all the sequels since 1986, you know, because we didn't, weren't able to get the original cast back, so I always have a different killer in, in each installment. Uh, uh, kind of like the Psycho movies, you know, where it was different. Psycho 1, 2, 3, and 4. So. Why did you decide to call the sequel Truth or Dare Wicked Games instead of the, like, the normal Part 2 situation? Um, if I'm remembering right, uh, Madonna had came out with a movie called Truth or Dare. Madonna, and I think the, the original producers ended up with, with you know, in some kind of litigation with her. And obviously uh, she just put her name over it, put Madonna, Truth or Dare, and it's known as Truth or Dare. So I made that movie pretty close to when Madonna's Truth or Dare came out. So I just kind of opted not even to go that route. And I, and I figured I was so <laughs> low, low key and, and obscure anyway that Wicked Games, Truth or Dare Part Two, you know, was just as fitting. So it was mainly just because, you know, I wanted to avoid uh, you know, litigation. But then, I, you know, I, at that point, I didn't realize how small, you know, the horror subgenre is, especially direct to video. So it probably wouldn't have mattered at, at all. But at the time, I was thinking, oh, I can't interfere. I'll get sued. I, I'm, I'm sure, but I've never even heard of. Uh, <laughs> especially now, in like 2000, there's like five sequels <laughs> or five different names, other alternate name movies, you know. Right. Yeah. Now it's out of control. Back then, there was no IMDb and everybody was pretty respectful and territorial of titles. Now everybody just steals everybody's title. And you, like you just said, that, I mean, one movie uh, can have the same title and you're like, oh, well, which, which uh, <laughs> frenzy is it? You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Amityville 5,000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, nowadays, though, they're even popping them on the same date. So you're like, no, because you cause usually you'd be like, oh, 2018, 2019. It's like, they're popping out the same year. And now there's no <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. And a movie made in 2017 gets remade in 2020. It's like, uh, what was that? Cat <laughs> got remade, you know, just like, oh, God. Like going, oh, what, what? What? We have no new ideas <laughs> at all. 
Yeah. Seriously, it was shot for shot too. It was the same uh, fucking movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I didn't see it. It, it, it. it. I was like, it's just too soon, you know. Even the Hitcher, I was like, you're never gonna beat, uh, you know, Rutger Hayer. Uh, um, yeah, it's just great. Never. With your use of nudity in most of your films, was there a reason why Killing Spree didn't have any? Killing Spree, no nudity. Well, you know. That movie is so graphic anyway without the nudity. Uh, I remember one of the first reviews that I read of it was uh, John McCarthy's Splatter Movies Volume 2, I think. And he was like, this movie is appalling, shot like a <laughs> hardcore porn movie. And I was like, all right, I succeeded. But putting nudity in it may have just pushed it right over the limit. But when we shot it, some of the investors were not keen on that. And then also uh, the material is really strong. Even casting, you know, the lead actress, Lisa, was a, a, supposed to be a nymphomaniac housewife. And we originally we did have nudity in it, written in it. And uh, no one would take the role. People were backing out at the last second. Very difficult. We were casting at a church. We got kicked <laughs> out of the church. It was a media banana. <laughs> As you can tell, all this is just sheer madness, all these crazy stories. But uh, uh, so eventually we opted. And the actress that uh, we, we got, Donald Farmer, a friend of mine, of course, uh, another filmmaker, uh, he was he hooked me up with Courtney Lacar and, and she wasn't keen to do you know nudity and the investors really didn't want it. So long story short, you know, we just said, ah, we don't even really need it. We have so much gore and the gore is the focus of this killings. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah there were some great kills and killing spree <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, they, and the acting is great i, I love that oh, actor yeah. did he do yeah. anything i mean i know you did a, like three of your films yeah 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 he's gone on to do you know, a bunch of other movies well not a bunch but a, a, definitely a handful of movies and he was in uh i want to say uh i forget the name of the movie but he he did do like a cameo in uh recent splatter movie that was made. you were talking about like the investors weren't keen on it but like have you had like pretty decent relationships and like complete creative control through most of your work or has there been a couple like times where investors kind of mess with you yeah that definitely uh, truth of day and killing spree because they were name you know kind of aimed at a, a bigger market the um you know like Vestron, we were trying to get deals with Vestron and stuff. There were definitely restrictions, but after that, really, no, only kind of self-inflicted because when you sell these, you know, Joel Weinkoop and I would go around video stores you know, out of the trunk of our car selling these things. So, you know, different stores and different areas, you know, in the Bible Belt and such. So we would make two cuts, one with, with nudity and one without because some of them didn't carry adult movies and if you had nudity on a movie on a shot on video movie it was automatically just assumed it was you know an adult movie especially a movie <laughs> wiki games with the chaz balen box art and all that kind of stuff so uh so we had we would have two different cuts even then and then later um the movies got chopped up you know for like for when srs cinema if they make a like a dollar video store deal uh mm -hmm. they would you know, need a, a cut with no nudity, so that would happen. And then when we, when we were getting in Best Buy and Circuit City in the early DVD days, there was restrictions. Now, not so much, you know, but back then, you know, definitely. And Creep was aimed at, uh, uh, like, Blockbuster. You know, the idea was to try to get it into a Blockbuster video. So, and 
we ended up getting not into the uh, corporate stores, but they were allowed to carry it uh, in the, uh, I guess, the owner-operated ones. Franchise, yeah. yeah. But we didn't do too well. But as Blockbuster absorbed all the mom and pops, they ended up getting all my movies, even Day of the Reaper. So go figure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Did Hollywood Video let you do nude ones? Yeah, Hollywood Video was one of the ones that preferred that. And they were, you know, that was one of their strong points, obviously, was their B-movie B section with all the crazy, you know, gore flicks and everything. Mm -hmm. So they were they were good. No, I miss Hollywood Video. I remember buying out so many VHSs when they went out of business or when they, not when they went out of business, but it was even when they were just trying to get rid of VHSs and just transferring over to DVDs. Right, and just right. getting rid of all their stock. They're like, yeah, we have a bunch outside we're throwing away if you want to pick through. It was like, there's like 600 <laughs> horror films out here. Like, yeah, I'll take it all. <laughs> like, they go get a couple of vans and a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll be right there. And then uh, you brought up Creep. So how was working with Kathy Willits? Uh, she was really fun to work with. Uh, again, a lot of people may not know who she is and was at the time. She was a 90 scandalous uh I guess, scandalous celebrity in, in South Florida and it went national for a brief spell. But she was essentially, uh, she was kind of a call girl and her husband would uh, record and document the, you know, the dirty deeds from the closet on videotape, so <laughs> sex videotape. And one of those uh, clients happened to be, I believe, a Miami uh, uh, mayor. So that just opened the, the lid on political corruption and all this stuff. So I guess... Her and her husband ended up doing a little bit of jail time. And when they got out of jail, they called me. Uh, who, who doesn't call me when they get out of jail? Almost <laughs> so they said, hey, we wanted to, uh, Kathy Willis is going to embark on uh, an adult film career. And she's doing some spreads for magazines. Uh, can you put her in a movie? And I was like, nah. and at the time I was working on Creep, but I was like, yeah, why not? You know, let, let's do it. So, <laughs> Wrote her a role in it. She was great to work with, very pleasant. Came to the set prepared and uh, just, you know, I thought, you know, the movie was inspired, the creep was kind of inspired by a mix of natural born killers and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer at that time. And, uh, you know, I thought they both just, uh, you know, really inspired that movie. And she did a really good job, her and Joel, had good chemistry in it, playing brother and sister serial killer and uh you know the incestuous relationship again a, a family <laughs> film you can feel at school uh but a family no. film yeah so having a female killer in creep how did that go and is there any female killer movies that inspired it i just think if you can get the female to be the killer that it's kind of cool because friday the 13th was a, a big inspiration but i mean as far as real serial killers there's a few that are female and you know but uh you know Back then, probably not as much as it would be now, where we have a lot more information on that. But uh, I think it's just fun to have the females as a killer in the same way that, uh, you know, a lot of people say that, uh, you know, that I hate females because all the victims in Wicked Games are, are females. But if you look at Killing Spree, all, all the victims, pretty much 90% of them are men because the guy thinks that his wife's cheating on him with all these dudes. So it just depends on the stories. But nah, nothing really, uh, you know, comes to mind, you know, like ripped from the headlines. It was more of, um, you know, Mickey and Mallory Knox type of uh, influence more than anything. Real. And then you have a lot of similar themes. I was wondering, like, why Infidelity was part of them. Uh, infidelity seems to be, you know, everything 
you know, we all experience that as far as uh, being, you know, rejected by somebody or something not working out in the relationship. And of course, there's been all kinds of, uh, you know, murders and mayhem and uh, mutilation caused by, by people who didn't get along. So I've always uh, kind of just tapped into that, even when I was a teenager and, and being kind of rejected by, you know, girls or women that I liked and, and, you know, feeling that uh, at that age, I kind of just channeled it into uh, my, you know, the, the work that I did, and the, you know, the movies and everything. And it, it just seemed like it was just, you know, a good springboard for murder, mayhem and uh, madness because it kind of makes you feel so insane. <laughs> if that makes oh, yeah. sense. <laughs> no, it definitely does. It's more universal like feeling for right. most people right yeah. rejection and all that contrast as a matter of fact uh one of my newest shorts in high fear uh kind of deals with that still uh, in, a, in a new and different way where there's an insurance policy and somebody's killed <laughs> a blast or still oh, yeah. same thing yeah so you've made a ton of movies over the years and i was wondering like what's your favorite and to throw it in like what's your least favorite out of your filmography Oh, wow. Uh, well, probably my favorite is probably the Wicked Games snuff because it came out, you know, we re-edited it years later. And that was primarily only in, uh, released in Germany initially. It was just a different cut with more scenes in it and uh, more of a wild flow, kind of like irreversible. The other one that came out really good, I thought, was Reconciled. Uh, it was just a, a good shoot, real good, enjoyed it. Everything we did, uh, you know, it came out as close to, a, I imagine, that on paper, uh, on, you know, uh, on, when I wrote it on paper, it came out as close as it, it could on video and the end results, I think. So that was pretty impressive from, from my view with just a $3,000 budget. Beyond that, uh, least favorite, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you do try hard or they're kind of like all your, your children, so trying to criticize one would be probably impossible for me i'm too close to them um are there any big projects or that fell through and never happened yes i've had uh we had uh, truth or dare a big remake uh set uh for lion's gate at one one point uh with uh, robert massetti who was going to be the producer we had that there for quite a while and unfortunately they had uh uh executive change and when that happens all the old projects kind of get wiped clean and then we had another kind of a jallo horror movie that uh i was asked to direct and that was going to be in uh, dublin ireland at one point that had a 10 million dollar budget everything was looking good joel weinkoop was going to be in it the script uh, was written by somebody else and was really cool and took place at a girls school kind of like the old uh i guess uh Argento movies like uh, Phenomena, something like that. And, you know, that was what the attempt was going to be. And unfortunately, that fell through with uh, the stock market crash. All the investors who had put money in it took their money out because of the 20, 2008 uh, market crash. So, yeah, that's sad. sad. <laughs> yeah, that would have been awesome to see you do a Giallo, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It would have been fun. Oh, yeah. And then uh, what, $10 million, uh, come on back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then uh, what was your most challenging movie? Oh, wow. Challenging movie. Well, they're all challenging because you're battling uh, either no money or even if you have money, I've noticed even a $300 budget like Dirty Cop or a $300,000 budget like Truth or Dare, Critical Madness, you're battling time, weather, elements, 
organization of people, casting, you know, uh, temperamental things that happen with actors and all that kind of thing. So, you know, they're all very, very challenging. Probably Truth or Dare Critical Madness was probably my most challenging because I was jumping in from the Super 8 feature to the little VHS anthology. And then it was like a film school and, and one learning how, uh, you know, learning on the job practically, uh, you know, how to storyboard and things I read a little bit about, but I had no, you know, practical experience. So the, I learned everything as I, I was doing it from uh, uh, the producer, Yale Wilson, who uh, had worked on Death Wish and a lot of other big movies. So, you know, that was probably the most challenging, just getting acclimated to, you know, more professional filmmaking. Reconcile a bit of different than your typical film. Um, are you have any plans of doing something similar? Uh, you never know. Uh, you know, it was a it was a fun movie to make, and it's kind of like Sunday school for exploitation fans, is what that was all about, pretty much. Uh, kind of taking, uh, you know, my uh, religious upbringing and beliefs and putting it into a more positive movie where. Up to that point, I'd only seen, you know, kind of the negative side. And, uh, you know, of course, horror is always like devil worship. Yes, we love Satan. So I was like, oh, I think I'm going to mean, you know, make something on the other spectrum. So I, I think as a drama with uh, some thr thriller aspects, I think it came out pretty good. And, it, and it's got a little bit of a exploitation flair. But yeah, to answer your question, definitely, uh, you know, I would not be opposed to, uh, you know, doing something, uh, you know, in that vein again. But uh, the response. The response to that movie was really good, especially when we released it through Netflix, their DVD rental market then. Uh, that was a time when that was really big. And I got a lot of really good feedback and everything from that. From that. But uh, the kind of the religious organizations didn't respond too well to it. They, they didn't like a non-denominational approach to the, you know, the material that they, you know, they kind of, kind of put a stamp on, so to speak. That's the most uh, CGI you've used in a film, right? It is, yeah. It, it was written around a friend of mine, Todd Ponsler, was showing me. He was just messing around with CGI effects, and he showed me these key effects that he had done. One was a dragon. One was a river full of blood. One was, uh, what was it? I think a fire shot. And I was like, these, at the time, they looked spectacular to me. And I was like, you know what? If I write a movie, uh, a low-budget movie around what you can do now, I'll, I'll shoot the plates and I'll shoot the empty frames and you can just kind of paint that stuff in there and do it. Uh, and, I, and I figured out a way to integrate those into the script. I, I think pretty, pretty good because I had a list of, of things you could do and I was, I managed to integrate them in the script where they kind of made sense with the story, I think, but uh, uh, that, you know, that's the way that came about. But yeah, that's definitely the most CGI I've done up until Sharks of the Corn where we had, uh, you know, a, a lot more uh, CGI done by uh, Dan Tom. So and he did a really good job. My favorite shot in that is the shark jumping up and grabbing the helicopter. So, yeah, <laughs> fun to do that. If you're going to make a shark movie, you got to have a helicopter. Ever since Jaws 2 and uh, <laughs> Last Shark, you've got to have that shark jumping up and grabbing the helicopter. And I was able to do that <laughs> on time store budget. So Hell yeah. Yeah, one of my biggest cinematic guilty pleasures is like B to Z grade like shark movies, and I I love that you made one. And I was wondering like what made you decide to jump into that genre? It was actually the distributor Ron Bonk's idea and title, and he gave me like a couple sentences of what he wanted to see: sharks in cornfields, and he had the poster art done and everything, kind of like Charles Mann and Roger Corman 
did in the old days. It's, it's creating the art and pre-selling that. So once he gave me that idea, at first I said, no, I'm not interested in that. That's <laughs> silly. Then I thought about it and I was like, you know, that's what's popular now. And uh, I love the movie Jaws. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. So who am I to say no and kind of homage one of my favorite uh, movies of all time. So it's really kind of a, a serious comedy love letter to Jaws made with no money. So <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, came out, you know, that's up to the viewers. So. No, I definitely had a fun fucking time with it. <laughs> Most, there's been some good fe- it's kind of divided people. Uh, one of the reviews I read and I stopped reading the reviews, the guy was like, you know, uh, after watching the first 10 minutes of this, I, I just want to kill myself. I was like, I, <laughs> I can't read any more of these bad reviews. But yeah. I feel the same thing about your review, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not for everybody, but it's definitely, like, up a good niche, like, alley. And I think the shitty, like, like the shark movie genre has actually jumped up to the mainstream quite a bit. Like, Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Ever since, I guess, the Sharknado movies and the Asylum, you know, ones where sharks oh, fight. Yeah. So. yeah, two-headed shark attack and three-headed and four-headed. <laughs> right. Four-headed shark versus the 20-legged octopus. <laughs> <laughs> so did that a random uh, Elijah Wood shout-out um, boost your, your sales? Uh, it helped. I mean, not, you know, nobody got rich off of it or anything, but it always helps. And it's really cool and an honor to, uh, you know, have somebody uh, of his status say that, uh, hey, you know, Truth or Dare, Critical Madness was a movie that really got me inspired to, uh, you know, make movies, be an actor and has his own horror production. <clears throat> yeah, but, no, even just saying like he's your favorite, you know, director. It's got to be a big shout out. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And I think uh, Craig Zaylor was another one who, who wrote in Fangoria that he really loves Truth or Dare, Critical Madness. Of course, he's done the Cell Block uh, movie there that was really cool with uh, Vince Vaughn, Cell Block oh, 99. Something that was did. such a great Ball movie. And Cell Block 99, yeah, really cool movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah really cool that uh you know these guys you know even know you know of, of some of these small work so maybe they can give me a call i can tap some words out for them <laughs> and you said you you read uh every issue of fangoria is there any other four magazines that you like really like that are similar to that oh yeah i, li- I like rue morgue and horror fan and uh loved video watchdog back in the day and draculina famous monsters yeah i grew up with all i grew up on the printed page of course and now of course fangoria still prints but uh you know it's definitely uh, a much smaller market with the internet and everything but i'm glad they you know these magazines if you go into barnes and noble it is amazing you can go to their magazine section there's still you know half a dozen you know horror magazine and indie indie film magazines that are out there so that's that's pretty cool yeah i miss them they stopped selling them in my town a couple years back so i know we already talked about it previously a little bit but uh you went through wildlife for a couple of releases i was wondering like if the experiences were usually good or yeah, Wild Eye, uh, they really get, they really got high eight out there. Uh, that was the first movie that I, I dealt with them uh, for. And, and uh, Rob, the owner of the company, seems like a, a pretty cool guy. I know a lot of people have, have supposedly had issues with them. But of course, you know, when any company 
takes your movie and uh, you know does artwork and manufactures DVDs and uh, pays licensing fees and gets them on streaming. You know, it, it's tough to to make back money because they have to recoup what they've invested beforehand. And a lot of people expect you know once they see it listed on Walmart or in the five dollar bin, they think they're going to make uh, you know thousands of dollars hundreds of thousands of dollars or be a millionaire but it's not like that i mean even if you get your movie in uh, walmart that you know they only buy so many copies and they don't sell they return them to the distributor and it's a six-month process or more uh you have to deal with the returns and the shipping so it, it's the business side of it i'm always learning and and always uh you know leery and always surprised at what works and doesn't work so you know you're very lucky if you get something that makes a lot of money right off the bat and, and gets a fast return so i would yeah. say yeah spend what you can afford to lose on any movie or go the indiegogo route where you know you sell first to your donators it's just the best way to do it to be safe these days yeah and then you were saying that like advances are also a good thing like do you normally like get advances when you're going through distributors well, yes and no. It goes through phases. It be, you would get advances all the time in the 80s, and then it dropped off in the 90s. And then now it's it's a good time because shot on video, especially analog, is hot again for Blu-ray releases and stuff. So people are offering advances. And I know like Donald Farmer does real well with Wild Eye. He did his Shark Exorcist movie there. So, uh, and he just did part two, which I helped edit. So definitely try to get an advance and if you do to get an advance that's pretty much what you you know should would count on on getting back and then everything else is gravy but i uh, know i've always had really good luck with uh srs cinema been a rom box an honest stand-up guy and if he makes money and sells something for him you know you're going to see your money so he's one of the guys i can definitely vouch for 100 percent. oh yeah that's good to know <laughs> yeah. How did you meet um, Vincent LaRosa? And um, can you tell us a bit about the project the two of you are working on? Uh, Vincent LaRusso, he's a really cool Miami-based actor and uh, producer. Uh, when I was distributing Creep in 1995, he reached out to me when he was making a movie called Streets of Darkness. He did two movies, one called Just a Chance, directed by William Griffay, and then a sequel uh, later called Streets of Darkness. and we became friends uh, in the 90s selling our movies. I was selling Creep and Wicked Games, and he was trying to sell uh, Streets of Darkness to Blockbuster. He'd gotten just a chance in the Blockbuster, and, and that's when kind of times were getting rougher for everything and everybody. And uh, we, you know, we had lots of experiences together trying to sell our movies. And he needed a composer for Streets of Darkness. I think he had a problem with one of his composers. And I hooked him up with uh, R.M. Hoops, who had scored Wicked Games and Screaming for Sanity. And uh, we kept in touch over the years. Uh, he had a different career. And when he retired uh, recently, uh, you know, we've been talking on and off probably for 20, 25 years. Um, he wanted to get Streets of Darkness and Just a Chance out again. And I said, hey, I think there's a potential market because as we've been discussing, analog video is, is you know, back and of interest. His movies are... The first one was uh, aimed at the kind of blockbuster uh, and the Christian Broadcasting Network, and it was about gangs and it had a really good anti-gang message. And he's a very strong actor in the Al Pacino uh, type of way, especially in those you know those movies that he did. And he even mm -hmm. won uh, 
won an award for for I guess it was Just a Chance or Streets of Darkness, and I was probably ju uh, Just a Chance in 1993 for uh, Miami Crime Film Festival, and you know we ended up pointing him in the right direction to because he only had VHS masters of both of them left because you know a lot of us back in the day didn't think to keep our masters. And he'd lost track of the beta and the high eight masters. And so I directed him to a place where he could get a good transfer, helped him restructure, re-edit the movies, add some new sound cues. And hmm. as we went along, I helped him get distribution. And the Streets of Darkness is available on Blu-ray from uh, SRS Cinema right now and uh, selling really well. There's T-shirts and posters and, and all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, it's great to see his movies come out again and, you know, the direct-to-video market is a lot, you know, pornography, horror, those kind of things. Very rarely do you see uh, a Miami Vice-inspired mafia movie inspired by Scarface type of thing. So these are a real piece of history and you know, a real determined guy to get something done his way and get it out there. Mm -hmm. So I really recommend those for, you know, something different and, and cool and out there now. And I think next year they'll also be on streaming and DVD. But right now there's like a limited edition Blu-ray that you can get uh, at SRS Cinema. Yeah, as well, I think uh, you have an interview on the bonus features and then the interview I did with him are going to be on the bonus features, which is cool. Yeah, yeah so. those on there and a commentary i think i did a commentary asking uh vincent a lot of different questions and stuff yeah definitely a great guy and uh hopefully he'll be you know back at it again after this is uh successful in the next year or so uh we're talking about maybe you know doing a, a project so we'll see where things go so while so many sov directors kind of fell off the map you've stayed strong and you've kept pumping out films consistently over the years and i was wondering like like, what do you attribute to being able to stick into the industry so long, especially with how competitive it's gotten recently with streaming? Oh, well, I guess I'm just I'm somebody, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of inspired by Rob Halford of Judas Priest and Udo Dirkschneider of <laughs> the band and Accept. These guys just keep doing their thing and, uh, you know, they don't stop. And, uh, you know, the heavy music kind of inspires me to just keep at it. And uh, I just just never stopped. I was either too dumb to stop or uh, just had ideas that needed to be uh, told or and one thing leads to another. And if you stay at it, you know, you get asked to do, you know, like again, like Sharks of the Corn, you know, that kind of thing. Distributors and different people ask you to contribute to their projects like uh, Brad Sykes on High Fear, High Eight and uh, the... I guess the upcoming High Fear, High Eight, and we did High Death, three anthology movies, uh, mm -hmm. trilogy, you know, shorts. So yeah, I just kind of say that. And then, of course, Kevin Lindemith asked me to do the Alien Agenda and Alien Conspiracy movie. So a lot of it is just, I think, you know, being asked to do projects and, and to participate in things. So it's been been pretty cool. And then as I go along once in a while, I think, oh, I got a new idea. I might go ahead and do that. So just... Uh, but, you know, there's a few people who've stayed real at, you know, at a, you know, throughout all this. I know Todd Sheets and uh, Mark Polonia are still at it and, and Donald Farmer. So, mm -hmm. there, you know, there's probably half a dozen of us that are still, you know, still doing the thing, you know. Is Cat NATO, is that an anthology? Because there's like four different directors that are named on that. Is that just oh, a team? Yeah, that, it's, just, it's an anthology movie. I think it's got eight directors, actually. And mm -hmm. uh, Donald Farmer directed a segment. Uh, I directed a segment. Uh, it's got uh, Shannon Stockin, uh, aka Michelle Macabro. She's she's in the segment, and um, 
and Rebecca Reinhardt did a segment and there's a bunch of other people. So it, it's kind of a fun pun type of movie. So hopefully that'll come out in 2023. So what's some of the future projects that you're working on? Uh, well, again, I've got High Fear coming out in 2023, hopefully from Wild Eye. That's a collaboration with uh, Brad Sykes and Todd Sheets and a couple other filmmakers. Uh, and it, it's another anthology movie, and I think people who like my old stuff will like it. And also, Susanna Kepistashi and I have teamed up maybe to do Twisted Illusions 3. We've actually started shooting a segment. And Susanna did, uh, I think I was talking about earlier, uh, Night of the Zodiac. And she actually, one of her pet peeves is uh, uh, being inspired by, you know, directors like myself and Mark Polonia and Todd Sheets and Donald Farmer. And she goes around and shoots only in the old analog equipment, the real analog equipment, not shooting digital and, uh, you know, putting, uh, uh, you know, the, the filters and the video looks on it. So definitely love working with her because she's got all this old equipment from 1985 on up. As a matter of fact, uh, we were, we're actually shooting a, a short that we might put in Twisted Illusions 3, and it's being shot with one of the original cameras that we used in 1985 that she got off of eBay and had restored and all that. So she's yeah. Definitely, uh, yeah, definitely a wonderful movie maker. And uh, if you like splatter, she really uh, cranks it up on the gore score. So definitely check out, uh, you know, Night of the Zodiac and uh, hopefully some future collaborations with her. And beyond that, uh, I'm sure I'll probably do something for SRS Cinema down the line, depending on the direction they go in, you know, with with projects because i know ron bonk's always got something cooking over there and of course <laughs> Cat Mato, uh, that's wrapped up and i also contributed to uh donald farmer's shark exorcist 2 which comes out next year and uh his latest one debbie does demons i did some uh, uh music cues on there for him and editing so and it, it's pretty if you like donald farmer movies uh, i think you'll I like it Debbie Does Demons, it's definitely harks back to Scream Dream, Cannibal Hookers, and, you know, my favorite is uh, Savage Vengeance of his, but uh, mm. definitely harks back to his older 80s output. Oh, oh yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, that's uh, about it. So we appreciate you coming on and, uh, you know, keep kicking yeah. ass. Thanks, cool. man. <laughs> Thank you you guys for watching and, and uh, promoting all this stuff uh, really appreciate it yeah no of course so oh yeah right. thanks again